0: Hello, I'm Alex Ravkeen. I'm a barrister at 13 Essex Exchange, specialising in mental health and mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased today to be joined for this In Conversation by Lade Smith, CBE. Um, I always want my guests to introduce themselves rather than me speak for them. So Lade, without further ado, can I just hand over to you and ask you to give us a, a little bit of a pen picture of yourself, please?
1: So my name is Lado Smith and I'm a Consultant Psychiatrist and um, I'm also a visiting Senior Lecturer at King's College London. Um, I am a Forensic Psychiatrist and I'm the Clinical Director for Forensic Services at the South London and Moores, NHS Foundation Trust. Um, I know Alex because we worked together on the Mental Health Act review that was um, commissioned by the government and chaired by Sir Simon Wesley. I have a background that, well, I basically I'm very interested in inequalities and uh, particularly work around black mental health.
0: And what, what I was really interested in digging into uh, with you today was really stemming from the work that we did on the Mental Health Act Review, where there was a huge focus, well, two huge focuses. What One was trying to grapple with and recognise inequalities in the mental health system, particularly, and there was a very specific focus around black mental health. And then also around the move towards greater infusion of capacity. So the idea of a mental capacity, not necessarily as it were full fusion of mental health and mental capacity law, but certainly finding important places to inject it. And then what I was, one of the things which was, going through my mind throughout the review, and I really frankly want to use this as the opportunity to dig your mind for it, or, or dig into it with you, is if we move towards digging into having a greater weight placed on capacity, what, if anything, do you think is the risk that we might run some of the same biases, some of the same prejudice, which appear in the sort of mainline mental health act across into thinking about mental capacity? And if there are those risks, what could we sort of do to try and make sure we're eyes open and avoid it?
1: Mm. That's a really good question. I think um, to start with, we've already, we've already, are already in that, are already having that problem as it is. to yep. be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, mental capacity at uh, from two thousand and five onwards. One would expect that. Um, when people started thinking about the Mental Capacity acts and thinking about mental capacity, that there would have been a, um, if you like, a kind of equality impact assessment. And there would have been lots of work around whether it would have an impact on different groups. But um, in fact, what we're finding is that, I mean, if you look at the literature, there's hardly anything about uh, equality, there's hardly anything about ethnicity at all, actually. And you're, you know a lot of the work that's been done around mental capacity has been done by your group, Alex. And um, you'll know that even that really good work doesn't really mention ethnicity very much at all. Actually, I think there's a, you know, uh, and the, so if you, I think there's a review by David Akai, 2008, 2009, BJ Psych, British Journal of Psychiatry. And what what they did was a systematic review of all the all the uh, work around mental capacity and um, particularly looking at people who are inpatients, psychiatric inpatients and whether or not they had capacity. And I think they had 30, they eventually whittled it down to 37 studies. And of those 37 studies, only seven actually mentioned ethnicity and whether ethnicity um, you know, uh, and mental, it had an impact on, you know, mental capacity assessment outcomes. And of those, there was one that said it did and the others kind of said it didn't. And then the one that said it did, that seemed when it was when they controlled for a psychosis, then it seemed to be that ethnicity was irrelevant. But the main problem is that no one asks about it.
0: Mm.
1: So then those inequalities are already probably there because no one has bothered to think, oh, might there be a difference here for people from minority ethnic backgrounds? And that is exactly the same problem that has happened with the mental mental health act and there's a kind of essentially it's a structural problem because the um you know the concepts of mental capacity are the concept of mental capacity is something that's generated from a um if you like a eurocentric tradition yep and that eurocentric tradition is um is all is, is it's excellent it's all very well and good but it may not work so well for people from certain cultural backgrounds that, um, for example, you know, certain people from certain cultural backgrounds are much less individualistic in their approach to things compared with, say a Eurocentric background. And uh, a collective approach, a family approach, a more team approach, if you like, is the way in which you would make decisions. You, make, you don't make decisions for yourself. You make decisions with other people based on the needs of other people. And based on, and, and oftentimes it might be that other people, other people make the decisions for you. And that's usual in your cultural background. That's quite a different approach to a Eurocentric tradition whereby you make decisions for yourself, often by yourself with a little bit of advice from somebody else. But it's very much for yourself and for your own needs, and not necessarily taking into account the needs of everybody else. So, and um, so, if a very convoluted answer to your question is: uh, you know, might we be making the same mistakes? I think the mistakes have already been made.
0: Yeah, well, that's a fantastically important answer to the question, and I think particularly important the fact that you're, as you're saying, well, actually, it sounds like there aren't any problems but that's because no one's actually asking
1: yeah but I, mean, I think that's
0: yeah. that's to so, so, so to some extent reflecting back on that in the context of the mental capacity act it's almost one stage back from where things are with the mental health act where at least questions are started to be asked yeah and data is gathered
1: yeah exactly exactly that's actually i was amazed i was amazed that um Especially because what I know is those people who are who are doing mental capacity work, who are thinking about mental capacity, doing the research, actually really care about people's autonomy. And they really care about individuals being able to have um, being able to have the best outcomes by making sure that whatever uh, support, care, etc., that they get are based on what those persons' needs are and what their de- wishes and desires are. But it's very interesting that a very fundamental aspect of the the law, the rules, the code of practice, just doesn't take into account fundamental aspects about a person's innate um, philosophy of life, if you like. Which is weird because, in a sense, those people who are most interested in mental capacity are most interested in people's philosophy of life.
0: Can I just sort of dig into this? I mean this is this is this is so important and so interesting. Is the problem, I mean the problem could be operated at all sorts of different levels. Is the problem that the law, the Mental Capacity Act, is very firmly set up to be an individualized model? So think... in other words, it is set up to construct the idea you make your own decisions and indeed if you're not making your own decision there's something actively wrong and you need to intervene or is it that it's worded in such a way that it it's not necessarily saying that but it's capable of being interpreted that way so i'm just trying to sort of get yeah, your yeah. perspective yeah. do you see if it's because if it's the lack, if it's the former the law is wrong and mm. that sends you down one track if it's the latter which is the law's it were not wrong but capable of being handled differently that points you down a different track and has some really important um, consequences what we should be doing with people not not people being assessed but the people doing the assessors
1: yeah i actually think it's the latter i think if you look at the law the way in which it's framed it and and and, you know that's you could argue that's the the best laws are framed in such a way that they are open to interpretation and they therefore take into account the needs of many people Um, I think it probably is a latter, because it does do that, it does allow for interpretation. The issue is, perhaps what it doesn't do quite so well, and maybe this is around the Code of Practice and the people who um, implement the law, is that it doesn't really take into account that we are living in a system that is structurally set up to be an individualist approach. So I suspect that when people were writing the law, they were thinking, Well, actually, this is going to allow people to to express their desires and wishes as individuals because that's what we all want to do. So Mm. that was the underlying either conscious or subconscious, um, you know, context. But the problem with that is that that's the underlying context. If you're someone who has a a, a Eurocentric, Anglocentric tradition and that that works for many people, actually, whatever um group you're from whatever minority group you're from but it doesn't work for everybody and it certainly doesn't work for ethnic minority groups who very much have a collective approach to the way in which they make decisions the way in which they live and that isn't taken into account in the code of practice particularly yeah i don't think it is at all actually if anything it probably lends itself much more towards making individual decisions
0: Yes, I think it's definitely fair to say that the code is currently NCA code is currently drafted is very firmly mainline that way, mm. and obviously we've got the opportunity in the sense of the code of practice is being revised at the moment to try and reflect some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's what's what you're making me think also is is in one of the few areas I've seen this worked out isn't in England at all. It's in New Zealand, where you do have there is a strong well, some people might say tokenistic from what I see, I think it's actually more than tokenistic attempt to recognize that there is a culture there, which is of equivalent value to the Anglo settler culture. And when you see the guidance written and I've seen the people doing it, trying to translate our MCA guidance across to the Maori culture, you do see some quite interesting cognitive dissonance. Because you do start seeing, well, what am I supposed to do? For instance, where the person just says, "No, no, it's not for me to make the decision." Mm. I mean, yeah. what do you do? I mean, what, if you're tr- if you're loyally seeking to do that in a non-tokenistic fashion, what does that do? Does that mean the person is capacitously choosing to let someone else make a decision? Or we can kind of filter that through our own, you know, the centric mm. That makes sense. Or is it this person doesn't have capacity to understand that they're meant to be making their own decision?
1: Well it's interesting, isn't it? Just as you are saying that, I feel you've almost answered the question. The the second thing you said, is it that the person doesn't have capacity, because they don't realise they're meant to make their own decision, is a really anglocentric, Eurocentric approach. Because actually you could argue if if the mental capacity acts were written by uh, a, collective, collective culture, um, a collective culture um, person, you know, first one from a collective culture, like a Maori culture, then that person would have said, it's clear that all decisions are made by the group. Yep. And that's your starting point. And your decisions, the decisions are made by the group. And what you have to do to show your capacity is to understand that decision-making is clearly a group, a, a, a group activity yeah. And if you think differently to that, then we have to question your capacity. Yeah, which
0: is 180 and what, degrees opposite, isn't it? Exactly,
1: exactly. And what happens in, in certainly in, in the UK, is that it really is, surely this person needs to be the one making the decision about, you know, their end of life care. Or this person has to be making a decision about what psychiatric treatment they're going to have. So the idea that that person might say, well, actually, I want to defer to my family. And I want to talk to I want my husband to make this decision for me or, um, you know, oh, no, no, no. It's my, my son has to make the decision because he's the head of the family and he will talk to his brothers and then and then we'll all decide. It's like, uh, hold on a minute. Because the first thing you think if you, um, you know, use a classic UK, you know, assessor would be, is there some kind of coercion going on here? Is there, you know, oh, do we have to worry that this person's under some kind of duress? Is there a financial implication? What, what do the family get out of this? And so it's viewed with suspicion, actually. Mm-hmm. It is. It's, it's viewed with suspicion. The idea that you might make a decision with a collective as opposed to as, on an individual basis, Even, especially, especially if that decision, the collective decision, doesn't favor the individual quite so well. So, you know, know, if a person decides, look, I really want my family to help me make this decision. And when I say my family, I don't just mean my immediate family. I mean, my wider extended family with all the elders in the family. And the decision is, actually, we think this person should move out of their house and sell it. And it's like, okay, so who gets the proceeds of that? And then you find out that, you know, the will means that all the people in the family get it. Then people are going to be saying, is that really in that individual's best interest?
0: yes i mean you uh, that's getting and that gets very fundamentally at the heart of pretty a pretty hardcore series of anglo english legal issues mm. i mean in the sense that the system is set up that yeah. this is not this person's decision with their name on the bottom of the dotted line you know whether it's consent to treatment or it's the sale of the house or the gift of the property and it's not that person's decision made with capacity voluntarily we have a major problem, or there is a major problem. So I'm interested, I do wonder whether it's, it's. I mean, y- your answer when I said, is the problem the law or the way that it's interpreted, at one level it sounds to me almost that it's, some of what's been got at is so deep, it's actually getting at the really kind of deep construction of what we mean, or what English law means and most common law systems mean you know, the kind of meeting of two independent minds. Yeah. Doctor, patient, contracting parties. And it's how you encapsulate that is a really... the big challenge.
1: I think... I, I, I still think that the law is written in such a way to allow su- sufficient interpretation... Uh, it, to allow... It's written in such a way that there can be sufficient interpretation to allow for people making decisions in a collective way. Yep. But... In order for that to happen there has to be good understanding from the assessor of the collective nature of a person making decisions i mean the truth is that when we make decisions as individuals we often ask advice you know the the idea about getting advice is is actually built into the system you government advisors you get you know uh you know advisors for um you know as a doctor i will ask advice from my colleagues you will ask for you know we ask for legal advice etc so advice is written is, is built into a, a Eurocentric culture as well. It's just that, you know, you get the advice and then you make the decision in that kind of, you know, um, you know Brian Cloughway, I listen to what everyone says and then I do what I think is right. But we... So, so I think that that's, that's kind of built into it. And if you are a good assessor, then you will have enough understanding of the person you're assessing. And you will have taught them enough to understand how... Um, How they make decisions usually and so if they make decisions usually using a kind of collective approach then actually that Wouldn't then question you wouldn't then question their capacity in doing so on this occasion So that's why I think it's probably still allows for that I think the issue is about the assessor and the assessor having good enough understanding of different ways of making decisions yeah in, in a broad sense a collective way versus an individualistic way
0: and one last question i honestly Lade, i could talk to you all day but a i know you're a very busy person and B, also i religiously try and stick to 20 minutes on this but one question there also is i know one of the big themes of the mental health that review was that we mm. can't move beyond systemic racism without recognizing that we need to have more people in the positions of power coming from the same background as the people who are being as it were the subject of the system so more black Mm. psychiatrists in positions of power more black consultants more yeah i mean just purely for one second thinking about um black community and the mental health That i wonder whether the one of the things you're saying also is that is just as important on the mental capacity act side so in terms of having, if you're having more within MCA as it stands, but also if you have moving towards more capacity-based stuff, that the people who are doing assessments are from similar backgrounds, not always the same, but similar backgrounds, so that we've got that, we're minimising the amount of mismatch, potentially, between
1: values. Do you know, I think, perhaps, I've been thinking about this a lot, I think probably a better way of putting it is that the person doing the assessment has to have a really good understanding of the person they're assessing. Yes. Now, one of the shorthand ways of doing that is to be from a really similar background because then you have a lot of the understanding without having to be taught it. But you can't guarantee that just because someone's from the same background that they're going to have the understanding. So I would just say the most important thing is that the assessor has the understanding and how they get to that understanding is going to be through different routes. One of the quickest ways is actually having a similar background.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Nadia. That's a fantastically practical note on which to finish. Um, I'm so grateful to you for your time. Um, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you very much for having me.